to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. We are going to be looking at Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, finishing up that, and we have decided to um, just take some time. There's some beautiful, beautiful truths and depths of some beautiful doctrines here in, in chapter 5, building through chapter 3 and 4 and 5, and going into the end of uh, chapter 5 into chapter 6. And so um, we're, if you want to turn there, Second Corinthians chapter 5. Um, I know uh, this is a um, kind of a, a downer weekend for a lot of people. Um, I know that uh, is a big downer for me. You know, a lot of the college football, there's kind of comes that point of year where um, that no more games uh, on Saturdays until they get the playoffs. Uh, particularly, um, some of you were probably just as shocked as I was last night. Um, I, it's, it's another year where I did not uh, win the Heisman Trophy. Um, uh, to be honest, I don't think I was in the top 10. I mean, they didn't call. I didn't get an invitation. I didn't dress up or anything. We just had other stuff going on. Um, but I did not do that. Um, so... Uh, Next year, turning 50, I don't even know if I will still apply for the draft, uh, just to be honest. So looks like I'm going to be here with you for a while. Um, I don't think I'll get the Heisman next year either. Just to get, I mean, there's jerks out there. And so um, no Heisman, no NFL, but um, I will be here with you guys. So um, it was a downer this weekend. It's a really, really low spot. Um, but we get to raise our eyes and lift up our eyes and gaze at Christ and this season. It's something greater than that. Um, we, we started out looking at recreation last week, just the, the, the beauty of God's redemptive plan in Second Corinthians uh, 14, or chapter 5, 14 through 21, um, looking at that, that idea of you're a new creation and all that goes into that. This week we're looking at reconciliation. You're going to see the focus of these verses in 18 through 20 on reconciliation. Next week, looking at um, chapter um, 5, the last verse there, 21, and it actually should go into chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And those are probably um, tied together in Paul's mind as he was doing that. He didn't like stop and like, hey, I'm going to put an end here and start chapter 6, but verses 1 and 2 of that chapter. And we'll kind of read through that today. You'll see that, how it's all tied in, but it's justification. Uh, we'll spend some time just looking at the beauty and the depth of justification. And then um, that last Sunday, looking at this adoration of Christ at the incarnation, what we've just been singing about, what Jason had mentioned, just adoring him, loving him. So um, this morning, let me, let me track, track a little bit of a path for you so you can see where we're going. Um, I want you to think about awe this morning. What we're going to be doing, we're going to be thinking about Awe. So if you know the four weeks here, Advent in awe. And as we think about awe this morning, I want to connect awe to that idea of Advent and specifically awe related to God's plan of reconciliation. And we read the word, we know the word reconciliation, but I hope that today as we're able to connect awe to that, that we, we must understand why Advent and reconciliation should produce awe. Why is it that 
Advent should be a time of awe? Why should reconciliation produce awe in us? And, and to be able to do that, it's not real attractive. It's not real awe-inspiring if you, if you don't think through the depth of our sin. So this chapter brings in some beautiful depth, depth of doctrines. So if you don't understand the depth of our sin, then you don't understand what's the big deal. Why, why the big deal? Why is reconciliation such a big deal? Um, and from seeing the depth of our sin, we must see and we might see and savor Christ's reconciliation for us and for others through this lens of awe. So you're going to notice that reconciliation has come to us, but it's also going to others. So the gospel made its way to you on its way to other people. If you're a treasurer of this, you're going to want to show that off. You're going to want to tell people about it, and not in some weird way, but just to where you're going to want to be letting people know about the most important thing in your life. So um, we're going to be seeing this, and I, I think I had that the two main points today is this um, idea of Advent and all. Christ came to reconcile us to God. So, so two big bullet points today, or two big headings would be Advent and all. Christ came to reconcile us to God. But then secondly, Christ came to make us reconcilers, so really stewards for others towards God. So your life is a stewardship that God's given you, and he's stewarded the, the gospel to you, and how well you steward that towards others. And so um, I could have made this sermon a whole lot about, you better go, you better go do this. You should be doing this. You should be doing this. And so what's lacking sometimes in evangelism, what's lacking in our desire to disciple others, what's lacking in our um, desire for our own devotional lives is we're, we're not treasuring Christ. We're not captivated by Christ because if it's captivating, you spend your time on it, right? If it's captivating to you, you talk about it. It brings you joy. It's a treasure to you. And so that, if we get that right, we can see that. And so I'm not going to spend as much time on you should be going and doing this. You could, and it wouldn't be out of line, but I want us again to consider the why. Why would be we be people that would want to Go out and share this to see others reconcile. So, because there's a lot of verses there. So, Matthew 28, that we could spend time on that. Matthew 28, that the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, um, teaching them to obey. Um, Acts 1 8, so the Holy Spirit's going to come on you in power, and you're going to be my witnesses. Your, your life is going to be revolutionarily changed. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria. Jerusalem, where they just killed me, that should cause fear. And then in Judea and Samaria, where they don't accept you and you don't like them. And you're going to be my witnesses in this city, where being a Christian should kill you. And Judea and Samaria, where they don't like you anyway. And then to the ends of the world, you're going to be my witnesses. My life is going to be about you. Acts 17, where we see that and Paul's speaking at Mars Hill, and it's not you know the, the Mars Hill in Seattle. It's not the. It's definitely not Rob Bell's Mars Hill. It's the original Mars Hill, and Paul is is, is talking there to this crowd, and he realizes they have all these different gods, and some some little idol factories where it, it, to an unnamed god, and he says, Do you, "Don't you realize that that this thing that you're desiring, this captivating thing you're desiring to worship?" Um, God designed and designated your life to be in a specific time. 
And so a beautiful picture there that he's saying that you, God determined the exact time and places for your life. You weren't supposed to be alive when Paul was alive. You weren't supposed to be alive in the 1800s or the 1600s. You were supposed to be alive right now. God's designated this time in history for your life, for this idea of you being captivated in Christ and and you sharing this gospel with others, becoming a reconciler towards others. Um, There's some beautiful stuff in in Ephesians 2, and so I wouldn't have time later on, so let me just read this real quick. So Ephesians 2, and this also fits in. So Ephesians 1 and 2. I would say, are kind of like uh, cliff notes to the whole book of Romans. And so uh, Ephesians 1, and then you get into Ephesians 2, um, just some stark, um, shocking things. So Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in trespasses and sins in in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, all these people living in disobedience. You were also among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out just these actions, these desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, so a huge thing, that, that that's the reality. But God being rich in mercy... Because of what? The great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive. So you're dead, all in your sin, enjoying your sin, or you're a really good person who acted like you didn't enjoy sin. Either one, he saw through you and said, while you were dead in your sins, I'm going to make you alive. I'm going to come and breathe life. So Ezekiel 36 the, the, the Spirit comes, I'm going to send the Spirit, He's going to breathe life and give new life to you. And so um, Ezekiel 36, uh, Jeremiah 31, where we see this new covenant, all these things that we've been looking at. He says, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised you up, us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So that in the coming ages, so why would God do that? In the coming age for all eternity, not just us, but other creatures and God himself, that through the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us, these pitiful, dead soul sinners in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved, through faith. This is not of your own works. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one could boast. For we are his workmanship. And this is where it ties into 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You're reconciled. So, so now you're reconcilers. You're ambassadors of Christ. You're pleading for others to be persuaded to follow Christ. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So God's got a future prepared for you. He's designated that you would be alive during this time period, and he's going, I want to use your life for this as reconcilers. Therefore, remember that at one time you, you were Gentiles in the flesh. You were uncircumcised by what is called the, the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at the same time, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, 
having no hope without God in the world. And so I think that we don't appreciate Advent and we take for granted reconciliation because we forget that, what it was like to be alienated, separated, no hope and no God in the world. I think that we forget that. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So he's talking about the old covenant. That we might create, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So that whole picture in Ephesians 2 is what we're seeing him tie together in chapters 3, 4, and 5 in 2 Corinthians. And so um, as you look at this, um, think through these questions. What brings you awe? What, what brings awe to your soul? What have you tied to that awe? What, what, what is it that, that brings awe? And then, then what have you tied to that? Do you look past this object that brings awe to your soul and thought through, that's the creator. That's his creativity. That's the creator of this that, that I turn this over to. So what brings awe? Have you tied that to the creator? And then are you in awe of God's love and actions towards you? Because sometimes we, we, we treasure these other things more than we treasure reconciliation. Um, and, and by the way, God knew that we were going to struggle with this. And you, we've, you may have been around Christians who try to present their life as if that's not a problem for them. I, I, those people, I run from them. When those people come to the church and they try to make it sound like that that's the way they live, and I just, well, I used to enjoy those things. I don't anymore. I've just become really good, and I just don't do that. I just choose not to. I, I, I run from them because in about six months, I find out what's really going on in their life and their heart. And so um, when you think through this, um, I hope that today it maybe shake the dust off our awe capacitors to, to, to make us look differently. And so to do that, we've got to look at this uh, beautiful plan of God, the redemptive plan of God. So we celebrate Advent because it's step one of God with us. Um, it was the, it's not the ultimate goal because um, of Advent is not because the ultimate goal was him being with us eternally in a completely sinless state. So, so you see the Garden of Eden, you see um, Adam and Eve, and so the fall happened, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But the ultimate goal is God with us. That's what he created in Eden. And so now he's recreating that. Um, God receives worship, and we get God. His first coming was not the completed picture. It would lead to what we know of his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And then we're awaiting the future second advent. We're awaiting that second advent. So we celebrate advent, his first arrival, because we want to pause and contemplate Jesus, all those things about him. But we also want to celebrate advent, anticipating and expecting and looking for his second coming. So last week, we, we, we took this idea from Augustine, uh, this awe, desire of the soul. And so I've got a slide where Augustine's quotes there. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it finds its rest in thee. 
So you see there, Augustine saying, there's something in me that's desiring to worship something. And I look around, all these things don't meet up. They're not lasting satisfaction. But when we find out finally that it's you that we find our rest in, that's what we're, we're supposed to be living for. He says, I was not yet in love, yet I loved to love. I sought what I might love in love with loving. So he, he's just going, there's something in me. I just love, there's something in me that just loves to love even. I want to be in love with something. I want to love something. I don't know what it, I need some object that could knock all the other objects off the table that would be worthy of all my satisfaction. And so deep, deep, beautiful thoughts there. Um, Paul David Tripp, uh, he has a book called Awe, interestingly. Um, Paul David Tripp, he says this, I was wired for awe. And awe in something sits at the bottom of everything that I say and do. But I wasn't wired just for awe. I was wired for awe of God. So same thing as Augustine. I'm wired this way, but I'm finding out that it was supposed to be God that I was wired for awe in. No other awe satisfies the soul. Things in creation not only capture me, they capture you too. Like me, you need to spend more time gazing upon the awesome beauty of your Lord. Sounds like he's been reading 2 Corinthians 3.18, doesn't it? Beholding the glory of the Lord. So that your heart will remember, and in remembering, be rescued. So Paul's tying together, together this, this idea of the awe of our soul, capturing our heart. But if we're captivated in awe of Christ, beholding him, and what he has done, we find ourselves rescued. And so this idea of awe, that connects to reconciliation. So it's actually freeing you from something. Um, so awe and wonder, that, that desire for awe and amazement. Uh, it, it doesn't decline as we get older. So if you guys have had these little things called kids, so if you remember, you go into the store and um, at Walmart, genius idea, Target, genius idea. What do they do as you're checking out? They've got all the little stuff, and it's not on shelves. It's not up high. It's from, you know, from six inches up all the way. And so all these little things that kids can grab. And so then they're really smart because there's some that on, on their level that are, you know, a dollar each, 75 cents. And then they have something like $15, same size, all that. And so all of them, just colorful and little kids. And so what do you know as a parent? So the frustrating thing was when our kids would, you know, do those things, sometimes they would do the full-on drop in the floor and just squirm and scream. And everyone thinks that you're a horrible parent because you're not giving in to them or something. So as soon as you let them get that little gift, what do you know? That they're looking for awe. They're wanting to be satisfied, and guess what? You, you know the shelf life of it, don't you? You know that, the, I can't tell you how many times, like, I would just get ticked off later on after the, 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 the fight in the store, and the screaming, and the, the yelling, and the screaming out, you know, horrible words, and the tantrum on the floor, and that was just me and Jamie. That wasn't even the kids. That was just us, and so then, then you get home, and it's a 10-minute ride home, and you get home, and, and that little trinket's still laying on the floor, either broken or what, and you go... It didn't even make it out of the van. Like, it's so unsatisfying. This thing was so empty of value that you didn't even make it 10 minutes, and, and you already lost it. And so, you know, we look at that, and we go, man, it's, that's sad, and it's kind of funny, but, but it's not funny when you're 45, right? Because we do the same thing, don't we? Anyone got any sweet tooth? Anyone love Starbucks, coffee, $80 Dinner, really great steak. How about that that new shirt, that new dress, 
new shoes, furniture, maybe not that for you, maybe books, maybe, maybe an idea, maybe it's a house, maybe it's a baby. Um, we know things have this shelf life. They have a, a very fast decline in their ability to produce all. Um, you guys, so that's why I wore this shirt. So you guys, some of you guys know the story. I am Columbia man. Point break is during the 80s. And he's a surfer. And I look at that and I go, that is the ultimate, ultimate lie. I mean, you've got Patrick Swayze and Keanu Reeves together, two of the greatest actors of all times, in the one movie together with the ocean about surfing. And so um, as I would just look. And so I'd go to the beach and I'd see, and I love walking around docks and I would see these guys and they're the, the hardcore, like they don't make any money. They're like the sailors and the surfers and the guys that they, they live in the ocean. And so I'd see these guys and they'd have like these type things, these shirts, but except they're worn out. And you tell like, like he lives this, like this isn't going like hiking on Turkey mountain. Like I think I'll put that on. I wear it twice a year. This is, this is like, no, that's to protect him literally from the ocean and the salt and the sun. Like, that's legit. And it's like fade and everything. And so that, in Sankey's mind, like, I'm the 16-year-old kid back in the 80s going, that's what life would become meaning. And so I told you guys, like, I'm an idiot because I'll spend lots of money on certain things like coffee, but, like, I waited three years to buy one of these. And so they're like $35. So, but, you know, three years later, I, like, finally pulled the trigger and buy one. Guess what? It wasn't quite as satisfying. So, so I, I don't get to. I bought it like you know in sale, like on like in in the spring. So it's like May. So it's too hot. I don't wear long sleeves hardly ever. But man, I, it, it's just mocking me, hanging in the closet. Like, Sankey, you fell for it again. You don't even wear me. It's not even comfortable. Like I don't look good in these things. It's not even. So then we go on vacation. And I get to wear it. I did consider taking one and just like rubbing it and making it look like like I it like it was really warm. So I get to wear this thing, and man, there's this one point where on the ocean we're doing some things, and there's and then we had one of those uh, paddle boards, and so this guy comes up, and I've got my blue Columbia one. It's even nicer than this one. You guys can't imagine what I look like in it. And so um, I'm sitting there, and a guy comes up, and he literally is just like, "Hey, man!" And we're wading about, you know, up to our knees, and. The boys are out there, and we've got this paddleboard. He goes, hey, are you a local? Do you live here? And that was it. I had arrived. So you know when Jesus says, you know, like, where your heart is, there your treasure is, and, like, you, you get these little rewards? And, and, like, I almost kissed the guy on the mouth. Like, I, like I wanted to I wanted my, get my phone out and, like, take his name down and just, like, email him every month and stuff, call, check in on like he And I said, and I wanted to lie so bad and be like, Oh, uh, what's your question? You, know, you got a question about the area? Like, I don't know anything, but like, oh my gosh, he's looking at me like I'm this raw surfer guy. I didn't have long hair then, but like I felt the identity of it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I love this guy. And, and it, it was fleeting and gone because the truth was I, I didn't, I couldn't answer his questions about the local stuff, about the water, about whatever, you know, and I'm just like, no, we got this like at, you know, um, Academy or Dick Sporting Goods. They're all across the country. You don't have to have water or even sunlight. And so all of those things were like, you, you do it and I do it. I'm like the little kid at Walmart, except I, I, I should know that the shirt is not going to produce the life that, that I've been looking for. It's not going to bring the, the life that's full of meaning. And then yet we do it over and over and over and over again. So whatever it is for you, 
maybe it's just this idea that this next step in life, this is a big tendency to think the next step, that next step, that'll, that'll finally fulfill life. And then you get into it and you're like, oh, this really stinks. What was I? This is more hard work and more difficult. This is miserable now. And and then, well, maybe the next one. And if you're not careful, you get in your 40s and 50s and people start going like, hey, I don't have much time left. People are dropping off like flies. I better find some pleasure quickly and find some exit ramps, a newer version of her, a newer version of him, a little bit more risky stuff over here. And so you see that happening all the time because our awe factor is not in the right things. So Paul's laying this out in, in, in 2 Corinthians. So I'm going to read the, the section that we're going to cover. It's, it's not just um, 18 through 20, but it's, you, we're going to go back and grab 16 and 17 because the idea of this new creation, not regarding anyone to the flesh, according to the flesh any longer, but I'm a new creation. And then he goes into, because you were reconciled. So you would want to reconcile others, and then all of this fits in with, with what he's saying in this whole piece. So let's look at verse 16. From now on, therefore, and we're not going to focus on that. We're going to focus on 18 through 20. But starting in 16, going all the way through six, chapter 6, verse 2. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is past. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God. Think through those terms. All of this is from God. So we're going to go back and look at what does he mean? All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So notice there that we were reconciled to someone, to God. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Paul's saying, I, I don't think that you got this. I don't think you understood it clearly. So he's going, let me give you some commentary on that. We're getting a little charismatic. You got people running around the stage and everything, so I love it. So um, he's going, I, I don't think that you even caught this. So Paul rarely goes into commentary. I'd love to be around him watching movies. I love people who pause the movie and give running commentary. It's always helpful. You love those people. Um, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Very few times does Paul go in and give running commentary on the statement he just said. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So, so notice he said there in one not to receive the grace of God in vain. All, all that I've just talked to you about in chapter 3, all that I've talked to you about in chapter 4, all that we've been discussing in chapter 5, that, that we wouldn't receive this grace of God in vain because there are people out there that have not been reconciled. And you're being lied to and wanting to become 
Columbia man instead of living for the true treasure. Because when people think you're a Columbia man, it, it, it empties out real quickly within seconds. And you're back to the identity of that you're nothing. You're not spectacular. It doesn't matter what people think. There, there's your reward. You had it. It's like kids' candy. It's gone quickly. But there's a world out here, a spiritual war going on, that you're supposed to be living for, that I created you during this time span. That's what you're supposed to be living for, and that's what you're supposed to have your gaze fixed upon. So going back to chapter 3, so we see all these things that, that Paul's brought out, all the beauty. And so um, all of that, he starts out saying, all this in verse 18 is from God. So, so we have to ask the question, all of what is from God? What's in this package of reconciliation? So um, I have a slide up there. It talks about, it's, it shows the Greek word there, um, katalasso. And so um, it's a breakdown of two different words, kata and alasso. And so katalasso is this word for reconcile. Something being exchanged or, or like given as coins for others of equivalent value or to return or receive one back into favor. So you see this idea, the word kata, it's just a preposition denoting motion or diffusion or direction from a higher to a lower. So you've got this this, this preposition being added to alazo, kata saying that something that's moving in motion, in direction towards another one, from a higher position to a lower, and then alazo to change to exchange one thing for another, to transform, to cause one thing to cease and another to take its place. So, so we have this idea of something needing restoration, but also something needing to be exchanged in order for reconciliation to take place. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies, remember we just read in Ephesians 2, while we were enemies, we were reconciled, something was exchanged to God, by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. So, we, so we're getting this idea of some sort of payment. So along with the idea of reconciliation is this idea of payment, something exchanged. But notice uh, on our, our horizontal level, it would be us exchanging something of equal value to someone. So reconcile something with someone on, equal, on an equal plane would be you exchanging something of equal value. Well, we can't do that with salvation, can we? So here's God from a higher place reaching down towards us and sending towards us this gift of reconciliation. So like, like in, in Romans 5 there. So while we were enemies, we were reconciled. It was exchanged to God by the death of his son. So um, let's remember and just tuck this idea away of, of reconciliation, of something being exchanged. Now, um, we have to ask the, the question, what is our attitude towards reconciliation? So again, we want to have awe in it, but so think through chapter 3 and 4 and 5. Here's what I would suggest. I would suggest that we don't treasure these things. I would suggest that we say we do, but sometimes that we get distracted by all the other things. And just like the little kid at Walmart or, or Sankey standing in the ocean, that, that, that the lie kicks in and we start focusing our eyes and our gaze and our hearts and our time on this other stuff. And so in chapter 3, the things that we might particularly take for granted, the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. Pretty good stuff. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit in each believer. Direct access to God with the old veil removed. How many thousands of years, how many people in Israel lived a rough life spending all you know Friday and Saturday getting up to the mount to take their, their dead animal up there and all the process? How, how hard was that? 
And they still didn't understand Christ. The ability to behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Christ were partakers of the new covenant applied to us on the works of God through Christ. So, so you get these things. Forgiveness of sins. Imputed righteousness. The enablement through the Spirit to live in freedom and obedience. No fear of judgment or hell. Security of salvation. Power over sin. So, so pretty good list of things just in chapter 3, right? Like pretty good stuff. In chapter 4, instead of despair, we don't lose heart because the work of God that he's completed, though we face trials and difficulties and our outer self is wasting away, we, we have hope. The inner self's being renewed. So all of these things, the light has shone in the darkness. And part of our problem is we, we forget what it feels like to be in complete darkness. We forget what living in darkness and, and all the people around you, that's what they're doing. And it may look great. It may look glossy. It may look like their life's wonderful. But the light of the gospel has shown in our hearts. So there's understanding. And what did you do to get that? What did you do to get it when 1.3 billion Muslims don't? And 1.5 billion Hindus don't? What, what did you do? All those things. We are prepared for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Chapter 5, this perishable, impermanent uh, tent, this, our body is going to be replaced, renewed with a new resurrected body, imperishable. We're redeemed and called to new life, being controlled by the love of Christ. We now live for him. We point others to him, persuading others. And having been made these new creations, so um, going through from the old has passed away, and now all things are new, so all those realities, all of this, all of those realities, they are from God, not from you. You haven't done any of that. And I would suggest that we take that for granted. What's our attitude towards reconciliation? So what if you had knowledge of those categories, all those different things that God has done that he laid out for us in chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5, and then you found out that all of that's there and you can't have any of it? What would it be like if you found out that you were not one who would get to partake of that? What if you didn't even know about it and all those things are true realities and you were just living in darkness? That's what Paul's getting at here in 3 and 4 and 5. Corinthians, if this is all true and you've got all of this in this package of regeneration, this package of reconciliation, wouldn't you want that for the people that are living in darkness? You've been made a new creation. All of those beautiful, delicate things that have been given to you by God, wouldn't that prompt you to want others to receive that also? That's why he's turning this conversation in. Now he's no longer defending himself like he had been doing, trying to get his name just restored where they had trust his words. Now he's bringing back, if you've been made new, wouldn't you want this for others? Would we appreciate forgiveness more instead of presuming upon it? Would we treasure reconciliation instead of presuming upon it? You see, we, we tend to take for granted everyone in the room listening. And I'm not bashing you or us. This is part of God's design. But everyone in the room and everyone listening has been in, in an individualistic, success-driven, you're the greatest, believe in yourself, you set your dreams and go capture it, comfort-driven, have it your own way, you deserve better, comfort-ameshed, 
God ordained, you and your destiny, culture that makes much of us and makes very little of him in reconciliation. And we just tuck it away as a, a mental bullet point. At the end of time, I get to bring that one out. Oh, yep, I was saved that one day. I prayed that prayer. Yeah, I tried to be a pretty good person. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Any chance that that pervading constant mantra has affected us taking some of these things for granted? Any chance that our entitlement as, as proud American Christians, we've got rights, don't you dare, don't you dare take away, don't you dare try to, we've got rights. Furthest thing from Jesus Christ, furthest thing from Philippians 2. In our circles, we, we, we exalt that person. It affects us taking some of things for granted. Ask the Spirit, hey, what's my attitude towards reconciliation? Have I taken it for granted? So then we have to look at our state. So we know about the fall. The most tragic thing that had ever happened is started in the garden, this beautiful, perfect, holy, righteous, undefiled garden with unity, unity with God. And, and do you realize there's not a day that goes by that the results and the effects of the fall are not impacting your life. There's not a, a day that goes by, whether you're, it's your phone or your mind or another person is bringing up something that's more bad news. The next set of bad news as a result of the fall. So the fall had all this horrible effects on our lives. And that all shows us that the fall has brought us into this thing of original sin. And so we understand that. So this is the doctrine of original sin. So I want, I want to take you into this because this should allow us to see things a little bit differently. I hope that you're able to see the, 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 the devastating bad news to be able to see in awe the beauty of the good news. And so in this, the doctrine of original sin um, first of all, that we're guilty and corrupt. And so um, just that reality, to get to the beauty of Jesus and his advent. So here's the situation that, that made us needing reconciliation. So we were guilty and corrupt. Um, that's the state or condition that every single person is born into. Sin is universal. Sin is inherited. So here's just some scriptures. First Kings 8, 46, there is no one who does not sin. Psalms 143, in God's sight, no one is righteous. Proverbs 20, who can say I have cleansed my heart and I am pure from sin? Ecclesiastes 7.20, there is not a righteous person on earth who always does good and who never sins. Romans 3, it's a passage after passage from Old Testament setting forth and affirming the universality of sin. And then gets to Romans 3.23, all of us have sinned and fall short of treating God as if he was God, falling short of the glory of God. Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin conceived. So all of those things. When we look at the, the lists, the different names, the categories for sin, you think through sins, transgressions, iniquities, trespasses. A lot of us never think of, Jamie and I were talking about this week, um, just the sins of commission and sins of omission. So sins of commission is like, ooh, I know that's wrong. I'm still going to take this action and go do that. Ooh, here's this thought that's very tempting. 
I know it's wrong. I'm going to go ahead and do this. That's a sin of action. That's a sin of commission. You committed an act. Sins of omission. See this person who really has some needs. But man, I better keep stocking up as much as I can. Heart of generosity. Heart of meeting someone's need. Heart of humility, caring for it. No, no, no. That's a sin of omission. How about just the, the bigger one of you failing to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? He could always nail you on that one, right? Like That's a sin of omission. It, it, you're, you're omitting doing things of obe- obedience. And so all kinds of things that you could go into. So all those things, not praying, not being very loving to the people around you, uh, not helping certain people, not loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. A lot of those things, just tons of sins of omission that we never even think about. But does God see it? Does he see your hard attitudes? Does he see your actions? Does he see your um, views on things? Sins of omission, sins of commissions, transgressions, iniquities, impurities, all those things. So the depth of our depravity, it's much worse than we like to see, which may lead both to less awe and reconciliation and less treasuring of Christ. So people are like, reconciliation? Yeah, I mean, I, I get it. For God to love the world, right? For God to love the world. Or even in, in this section, yeah, all this from God who, through Christ, reconciled us. Got it. Here's two aspects of original sin that we don't know. So think about those terms, and then going even deeper, thinking through original sin. So in original sin, through the centuries, they've studied out that they have original guilt and original corruption. So you can see up there um, the two aspects of original sin. Original guilt is, is the legal standing before God. Next week we're going to talk about justification. This focuses on our relationship to God and his moral law. He has a holy, righteous standard. We are guilty before God. So sin, um, homartia, is, is, means missing the mark. The mark, you're missing the mark of God's holy standard. Original guilt. Um, This guilt must be paid. There must be some sort of satisfaction on the one who's been sinned against. So that's God's holy justice that says, I can't just turn my eyes to it and say that doesn't exist. So that's just original guilt. Then you so 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 what is needed on man's part due to original guilt? We we need something to take our place to pay the penalty for that. So that's what justification next week, where where we're gonna see you are now stamped not guilty by the judge. You get to go free. You're not guilty because someone else paid your debt. Um, Original corruption. This is focused on our state of being and sin's effect on our being. So our nature is sinful, corrupted, marred, tainted, stained by sin. We are not righteous. We are not good. Present in us is a tendency towards sin and evil, and we are not disposed towards willing, wanting, and doing of the good. Rather, we are disposed towards willing, wanting, and doing the bad. That's what Scripture calls the the sinful nature. That does not mean that we do only evil. So some people get real confused in this, and they think, oh, so you're saying that we're just all horrible? I do some good things. That's not what it's saying. Or my neighbor, they, 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 they brought us some brownies the other day. They're not even believers, and they brought brownies. Exactly. That's evidence that we're not completely depraved. We're not completely evil, so it's just this original corruption. It means that um, it doesn't mean that you're not capable of being nice or friendly or gentle or kind um, or doing a loving act. It means that there's nothing in you that has not been corrupted by sin. All levels. 
Everything, not only your physical, physiological being, that's why cancer and heart problems and, and, and disease and, and age kills us, right? The fall affected your physiological body, right? Um, and so then also your attitudes, your thoughts, your, your desires, it's corrupted all of those things. So that's why sometimes you have this really great worship time and listen to this really incredible song and, and then and you're, you're worshiping and then you're reading some scripture and you're having a good devotional time, you're having a good conversation and the next minute you'll be tempted, you may be tempted to do something that you're just like, how does that happen? Am I schizophrenic? Like I just went from experiencing that for three minutes or 30 minutes, and then I had this tempting thought. Even if it's just like, you know, I would like to ran that person off the road and, 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 and watch them tumble because they just pulled over in front of me. Just anger out of nowhere when you've just come out of incredible experience. So that's corruption to every level. And then there's two aspects of total corruption, total depravity, and total inability. So under that category, for centuries, they've said, hey, there's total depravity. Does it mean that you are never doing anything good, that you never do anything? No, that's not what it means at all. It means that, it doesn't mean that that would be complete depravity. It is not that you are completely as bad as you possibly could be, right? Uh, as bad a person that you possibly could. Complete depravity would be doing only evil, doing every evil Every single time the opportunity is available, that's complete depravity. So a lot of people in churches have a hard problem with total depravity, and they get it mixed up thinking that, or you're saying that we're just all evil all the time. No, you, you do some good things also, but just know that your heart is bent that way until glorification happens, right? And so it doesn't mean that the person is no longer has a conscience. Um, those are all misconceptions. Uh, our body, our will, our volitions, our actions, our motivations, our desires, our emotions are thoroughly corrupted by sin. Anyone argue that that's not your situation? So that's total depravity. And then you have total inability on top of that. So separated from God and all those transgressions and sins and iniquities and all those impurities and then all these levels of original guilt. You are guilty. You have no way that you would deserve to be around God, that you are completely depraved and corrupted at every single level. And then total inability says, and you could do nothing to change it. Nothing that you could do. So again, is there a tendency for us, like Paul says in chapter 6, don't take the grace of God for granted? Because you didn't do anything to change this. That level of separation, that level of what they call total inability. Total inability has to do with our intensiveness of sin on our spiritual capabilities. It does not mean that a person no longer has a will. It does mean that they are incapable of doing what he or she wants to. It means that original corruption is so intense that we cannot, on our own ability, according to our own capabilities, do anything that could merit any kind of salvific form. You're good to your neighbor. You give to some people. You give some money. You, you, you treat people kindly. Does not earn your way towards God. There's nothing of salvific merit in that. So that is total inability. We needed someone to bring peace between us and God because of all of those levels of separation, those doctrines of original sin, all those different categories, to restore our relationship to God, to reconcile us back to God beyond every evil and sinful action. We needed someone to exchange payment for our debt of sinful offense against a holy God. We needed our sin's offense to cease and the punishment for those sins 
to meet with justice. We needed atonement for sins. So remember this idea to exchange one thing for another, to transform. Kata lazo. To, to cause one thing to cease and another to take its place. So here are these ransom theories of atonement. So many people have not even heard of these. So the, the next slide shows, the, the first one is, hey, on this idea of we're all sinful, now I'm understanding the, the levels and the categories of sin, what, what, what is it that we need to have taken place? Who needs to be paid for our sins? So there's this first centuries, there's some people that believe this. So this was the, the, the ransom of Satan theory is held by Origen, very bright guy, uh, AD 185 to 264. According to this view, the ransom Christ paid was to redeem us, and it was paid to Satan. Aha, you, you tricked all of us, and you, you made all these people sin, so now we've got to buy these people back and pay Satan. And so he was redeemed that way. That's, that's not it at all. So it was not uh, paid to Satan. It neglects the view of God's justice, namely that God's holiness is what demands that sin receive punishment. It's God's holiness. It's not Satan. Then there's also the moral influence theory. Um, this was uh, first by, uh, advocated by Peter Abelard in around 1000 AD, 1100 AD. He's a French theologian. He thought that God did not require the payment of a penalty for sin, but Christ's death was simply a picture of suffering on God's part to show how much he loved us, which is a great moral lesson for us. So it's the moral influence. So we look upon Christ's death and we go, man, God came in the flesh and was suffered. We should suffer also for people. Just good moral example. Is that what the atonement was for? And then also there's the example theory. This is advocated by uh, Sosinus at 1539 to 1604. According to this view, Christ's death was merely an example for us to trust and obey God, even to the point of extreme suffering and maybe death. So all these things, there's the governmental theory. Um, um, this one is just that God is just kind of this moral um, law keeper out here. He's just kind of a sheriff, a marshal that's watching things. All of those fail it's contrary to the scriptures speaking of Christ bearing our sins on the cross. So here's the penal substitution theory of atonement. This is um, the ransom to God. So God's holiness, God in his very being, is what was offended. All those levels that separate you, your original sin, your original guilt, your uh, total depravity, total inability, that you could do nothing, in that, God saw our state and said, there's nothing that could bring them back. They couldn't be good enough. They couldn't get better, straighten their lives out, serve me more, do more, which we tend to try to do. We've got to ransom them back with something that's holy. My holy justice demands that something be paid. And so the wrath of God would have to come on something. So we see the biblical basis for the, subs the penal substitution theory that he died for us in our place. So Romans chapter 5, 6 through 8, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21, what we're looking at today, 1 John 4, he died for us in our place. He gave himself for us. You see that in John chapter 10 and Galatians 1. Um, he gave his life as a ransom for many. So look at um, 1 Timothy, if you've got a, a Bible, 1 Timothy 2, 6. He get, um, start back in five. For there is one God and there is one mediator 
between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. So we understand we have this mediator who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And so you see this beautiful picture that Christ became this ransom in the place of our total inability. And it was ransom to God. It was not required by Satan. It was not required by our, our, a good example. It was required by God's holy wrath. And God's holy wrath is what's waiting upon those who do not have Christ covering their sins. That is, so, so think through our verse here in, in, in chapter um, 5. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, meaning not counting their sins against them. So who is God, God, who is God counting those sins against? Christ. He had to count your sins and my sins and apply them to Christ. Total inability, total depravity, every transgression, every sin, every iniquity, every impurity, every thought, attitude, every sin of commission, every sin of omission, and the perfect Holy One takes the wrath of God in my place, in your place. And that's the beauty of reconciliation. That's the beauty that God brings out in that. Your whole list of sins, transgressions, iniquities, all of that, all exchanged by Christ for forgiveness. He takes your sin, your wrath, you get forgiveness of sins and freedom from sins. He gives his perfected holiness. So here's the the four facets of atonement. For uh, most Americans, we grow up with a mindset that kind of, you know, God loves me so much so that um, even we even become desensitized to sin and think that God is okay with however I want to live as long as I just say I believe in God. So how does this ideas of enemies of God fit with this thinking? So where we formerly had wrath, now there is propitiation. Or formerly sitting upon you is wrath. We now have propitiation. Do you see clearly why wrath is correct and just for all your sins? Do you see why hell is fearful and unimaginable as an everlasting place? Do you see why, in a, in a view, if you're viewing it from a perspective of mankind and you have this heart for mankind, like that just seems like it's a little bit too far. You're viewing it from mankind's perspective. View it from a holy God's perspective. Hell is a correct and fitting place for people who would say, you do not even exist. I will live as my own God. All these sins and things, I have a right to them. I will do what I want. I will be autonomous. I will live like I want. I will live as if you you don't exist. Hell is a fitting, correct place for those who would slap Jesus in the face for dying for sins. So propitiation. For where there is enmity, now there is reconciliation. Do you see clearly why reconciliation means so much in Christ taking on God's wrath, bringing you peace with God? Do we see why Advent should bring awe? Because God with us was the result. The whole point of Advent, the whole point of reconciliation was to bring us back to God, to nullify and to completely erase total depravity, total corruption, total inability, to bring you into God's presence for all eternity. 
Next week we're going to look at justification, seeing we're guilt. Now there's expiation. And we're slavery. Now there is redemption. So propitiation, this deals with the appeasement of God's wrath coming on sin. The Old, concept, the Old Testament concept of to cover over. The Old Covenant people were delivered from the wrath of God when something interposed or intervened between God and their sin. The blood was put on the mercy seat. God saw the covering of blood rather than the sin of his people. Was, was the blood of those animals really what God looked at? No, he, he was going, in 3,000 years, I'm sending my son. That, that's just a picture. The animal you slaughtered every single month, every single situation, none of that blood, none of those rituals, none of those sacrifices ever forgave one sin. You, you don't understand it yet, but I'm sending Jesus. So all Old Testament believers, their sins were forgiven by Christ, not those animal sacrifices. That is propitiation. It appeases, pacifies God's fierce anger and wrath. First John 2, 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so then reconciliation. This deals with the restoration of a relationship between God and us through the removal of sin, which caused the alienation. So instead of being enemies of God, we are brought into friendship in the family of God. So Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ did all of that work, died for you, brought in all of that. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. So that picture of penal substitution, the wrath of God appeased Christ's death, paying the debt. So putting it all together, if we went back and read that, this, this idea of, so but you were made, you were reconciled through all of that, but you also were made reconcilers. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, we, we've understood to a much greater level that one has died for all and everything that comes with that. Therefore, all have died And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, we're regarding no one according to the flesh, because if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Reconciliation is only only part of that. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If we paused and gazed more intently and pondered this more deeply, this beautiful Jesus becomes our deterrent from sin, at the same time our catalyst for our devotional life, for disciple-making, for evangelism, for church planting and missions. This beautiful picture of what God has done in reconciliation, what we're supposed to be captivated by and in awe of in, in, in Advent season, that's what should be the, the catalyst for evangelism, for church planting, for missions, for disciple-making. Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. 
So our mission statement, to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, to equip the saints, and and to extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. We were created as worshipers, bringing all of that together. That's why we say we want to exalt and enjoy Jesus Christ for what he did. That we want to equip the saints with, with that. Behold. Stare and gaze, Corinthians. Stare and gaze, sojourners. Stare and gaze at what Christ has done. Be in awe of that. Considering the state that you are in separation from him. All of those things. We were created as worshipers. Awe, enjoyers, and exalters. In awe and worship of God. And and in coming to him, we're seeing that reconciliation is this Huge, huge peace. So, so the devastating bad news of why, from God's view, we needed desperate reconciliation. The doctrine of our sin, all the levels of categories of our sins, but, but we don't like to look at that or hear about guilt or original corruption. We don't like to hear about total depravity or total inability. But yet that's why God sent his son as light into a dark world. And sometimes if we're not careful, we're worried about other things so easily, tempted by other things that captivate us so easily. So, based on this thinking through where your heart comes in at this time of the year, it may be weighted down and maybe you just need to rethink. You need to remember again to behold, even just the past week, maybe your past life to remember what God has brought you out of, to remember what it was like to be in darkness To remember maybe the darkness you struggle with this week and to be captivated in him, beholding him, to see all that God has done in reconciliation and to be caught up in awe of this Christ. We could celebrate that for this this whole month, celebrating then finally the day of him coming. We wait that day of him coming a second time. When we get to Christmas Day, we should be thinking about, this is great, but, but man, his second coming, that's what we're waiting for. So I hope that um, this view of man's depravity and our total inability and then the view of the penal substitution theory of God being paid, uh, God being paid a ransom for us, I hope that brings a bigger picture of Advent for you, a bigger picture of awe. Let me pray and close this.